Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's been about half a dozen instances where a, a block of housing or a residential area has been hit you just have to sort of hope that's not going to happen to you that you're not going to be the unlucky person who has a missile land on your head i've split today's episode into two separate parts for reasons that will soon become obvious because i'll explain them now i did that bit in the other episode about pirates so if you've already listened to that one then you're thinking, oh, has he just copied and pasted the same audio? That's lazy. But I haven't. I've actually just repeated the same sort of half. It's not even really a joke, is it? But it's a half sort of surprising end to a sentence, um, and I've repeated it. Uh, Colin Freeman is a British journalist and author who was chief foreign correspondent for the Sunday Telegraph until 2016. He mostly covered the Middle East and Africa, and then one day he was kidnapped by Somali pirates after his bodyguards double-crossed him, the very people who were supposed to protect him. So this part of the double episode, though, is about Ukraine. I rushed to complete it. My editor, Hawley, who also has a role as my girlfriend, rushed as well to edit and complete it and get this out immediately. Uh, You are a deserving audience, and Ukraine could change at any moment, of course, so there's no use bringing this out, you know, in four or five weeks when everything might be different. While we're talking, Colin is under curfew late at night in Ukraine, where he is currently working for The Telegraph as a war correspondent. He gives us a fascinating insight into life on the ground out there. I am suffering with a bit of COVID right now, and that's why I sound a little bit different. Um, and usually, the long-term, long-term or long, long-time, I suppose you are, listeners... Long-term sounds like it's an illness. I don't want the podcast to sound like that. Your long-time listeners will know uh, that I like to complain about anything that goes wrong with me uh, and compare it to awful, tragic things that happen to some of the guests. But I resisted the temptation to to say while he's out in the middle of a war, literally in a war zone, that my COVID's a bit bad. It's like a cold, basically. Anyway, Colin gives us a fascinating insight into life on the ground out there. As you'll notice, there's no outros today because I read that Apple Podcast charts are ranked based on completion rate and there's, with any outros or any podcast, there's a huge drop-off rate in listeners towards the end of my episodes. And I wonder, do the outros give too much, that much value anyway? It's just me saying, oh, that was good, and here's a review. So for now, I'm going to try just dropping them. Uh, and I want to see if this has a positive effect. Perhaps instead of getting bored by my ramblings at the end of the episode, you will continue and listen to another another episode do sign up to my brand new newsletter that went out today for the first time it contained all sorts of funny tidbits life hacks advice and little things to get you through the week i suppose or to start the week at least it's a bit of fun it's called the weekly edge and you can subscribe to it free on weeklyedge.substack.com. Just put your email in, and it'll go out to you every Monday. If you get bored of it, or you don't like it, just unsubscribe. But there'll be little interesting behind-the-scenes kinds of things, and it gives you access to me, because you can comment and like, and I'll see that, but also you can reply to the emails, and that will go straight to me. So you can shout at me for removing the outros from the podcast. Click the link in the show notes to join the 300 others who are already members, or go to Weekly Edge 
www.substack.com. Follow Colin Freeman on Twitter. You'll easily find him. It's one L in Colin. And get his books. He's written two fantastic books on pirates. Get those. Just type it in Google, Amazon. He's a really fascinating, intriguing man. And here he is talking about Ukraine and Russia. Doing out in Kiev at the moment, actually, or Kiev. Uh, well, I'm working for the Daily Telegraph, um, who is the, the paper that I've worked for on and off for much of the last nearly 20 years now. Um, I'm here for them on a freelance basis. I used to be on staff, um, and um, really just cover, trying to cover the war uh, uh, as, in as much as we can. So I've been here about just over three weeks i think yeah before i go i want to ask you all about that because i just think it's very i mean it's courageous and completely crazy to be out there right now um but we all have theories and i'm i seem to be i'm reading different things every day you're on the ground why actually is russia invading ukraine well it, it's a long story and if you ask somebody like um president putin it it, it, it goes back to world war Two and and possibly before but uh Russia, I, I think it's fair to say, has historically regarded Ukraine as part of its 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 near backyard, and um, uh, they were, of course, part of the same you know Soviet Union of Soviet Soviet Socialist Republics back in the days of communism. Um, but uh, the Ukrainians have always seen themselves as having a separate identity to the Russians and. In, in certainly in the last 20 years, since the collapse of communism, that identity has emerged more strongly. They have a separate language, for example. Um, and, and the country is to some extent divided in, in the east of Ukraine, towards the, the Russian side. You have predominantly, more, or you have more Russian speakers and people who perhaps lean more towards Moscow. But in the West, you have um, Ukrainian speakers. It's a separate language. There's some similarities, but it's still a separate language. And they have traditionally seen themselves um, leaning more towards Europe and wanting to be part of Europe. And those differences over the last, say, well, really, really since communism collapsed, but especially over the last 10 years or so, 15 years, have become more pronounced. And um, there are quite a lot of people in Ukraine who... Have looked at the way that the the Europe has gone and the European Union, especially the other ex-communist countries, um, you know, Poland, Czech, the Czech Republic, and so on, and they've seen them prosper within the European Union, and they've said, "We want a part of that. We don't want um, to be part of uh, the, the the Russian the, the Russian customs union, which they don't see as being a very happy place. They see it being, you know." Um, uh, a place where there's there's no civil liberties, um, and there's a place where there's corruption, gangster capitalism, and all the other problems that people often associate with them with Vladimir Putin's regime. Uh, it's not so much, I think, a thing about um, not liking Russians or not like wanting to be affiliated to Russia in any way. It's more we don't like the way the Russian government is run at the moment, and we we want we want to be in part of Europe uh, as part of Europe. That has not pleased Mr. Putin. Um, he's also extremely concerned, quite apart from Ukrainian aspirations to go to, to be part of Europe from an economic point of view. He's also extremely concerned also about the 
uh, Ukrainian ambition to join NATO. Um, and that's one of the reasons why it's led to this invasion. So would you say over the years we've maybe misjudged, have we misjudged Putin or have we just sort of looked the other way? Um, I think it's become apparent really ever since, I think, perhaps, you know, to whenever you want to choose a starting point, but um, the poisoning of Alexander Litvinenko, the, 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 the former, the, the dissident spy in London, uh, which, you know, a trail that led straight back to the Kremlin, um, not, not quite literally, but certainly in, in, the, in, in the radiological sense, you could trace the polonium back to the Kremlin's footsteps, more or less, the Kremlin's do- doorstep, more or less. That, I think, showed a lot of people that the, the Russia of today was, was, was a dangerous place. Um, I think as, in as much as the, the West, people talk about the West misjudging Putin, it would also seem that Mr. Putin has perhaps misjudged Ukraine because, you know, if you, he's, he's been worried about Ukraine joining NATO, um, you know, having one of, one of the countries right next door to him uh, joining an organization that's potentially hostile. On the other hand, uh, until he started causing, you know, uh, uh, until 2014, when Ukraine had an anti-Kremlin revolution, a lot of Ukrainians were fairly lukewarm about whether they went, whether they were part of Russia or whether they were leading towards Europe. Having then invaded Crimea and having now invaded Ukraine proper, he has created an absolute implacable enemy on his doorstep, whereas he might previously have had a, a country that might have been a NATO member but had no hostile intentions towards him. That has all changed now very much. So the, the big miscalculation, I think, really seems to be on Mr. Putin's side in some ways. Yeah. Although it, it's true to say that nobody in the West, I think, really really thought that he, he was going to do this invasion. There was a lot of Western intelligence suggestions that he might, but... I don't think anybody really took them seriously until it happened because it just seemed like the sort of thing that would have that people didn't do in the modern world anymore. I remember I read somewhere that you need to to to, to win on the ground in a war. You need to have some an advantage of sort of twenty five to one in terms of the size of your army and your power and stuff. And Russia is more like four to one at the moment with Ukraine. So I mean, it's it seems like an incredible miscalculation on Putin's part. Did he think maybe because they had a comedian as the president or sort of actor, former actor, they would simply lie down and just welcome them? I think there was a bit of a sense that um, uh, Vladimir Zelensky, the current. Um, president who yeah was a comedian in his in his previous life was perhaps not the most experienced politician although i i suspect he would have probably pressed ahead with this plan anyway as long as he suspected that there was a a pro-western politician in the presidency in ukraine as opposed to a pro-eastern politician a pro-Kremlin politician, he was likely to press ahead with this plan as it was. And if he were were to get hold of Ukraine, are, are other countries next? Should the rest of the world be worried? Would I mean, the, the NATO and, and all of that? Well, that, that's more difficult because the, if he presses ahead any further west, he's into parts of the European Union. The majority of those countries are also NATO members. It would be a much, much bigger deal. What people did think he might do is try and um, cause trouble in the Baltic republics to the northwest of Russia, uh, although they are also NATO members. I think the gamble would be that he would maybe try to cause trouble in one of them and possibly 
you know, mount some sort of small scale invasion just to just to test NATO's metal, uh, perhaps based on the idea that NATO's core members are really places like, you know, Britain and uh, Germany and so on and so forth, and that these newer members might not be the sort of places that NATO would want to go to go to the brink of war with Russia over, but. I think at the moment he's certainly got his hands full in Ukraine and I, I can't really see him pushing further forward uh, anywhere else at the moment. Well, the other thing to remember is Ukraine is a big, big place. It's not just geographically big. It's got 50 million people, which means it's, you know, it's a third of the population of Russia itself. Um, uh, so it, it's a big country to take on and trying to occupy. I, I really just don't see how he can possibly do that at all. So, yeah, he, he- I mean, can he win this war? Can Is it a way for him to back out without losing face? Well, there's been a lot of talk of him taking Kiev, for example, and toppling the government here and, and capturing the city. It's very hard to imagine really how he can, how he can do that, though. He might be able to physically surround the city just about at a stretch um, and, and make it effectively impossible for commerce and traffic to come in and out. If he had literally all his 200,000 troops at his command to do that, he could perhaps just about hermetically seal the city. But to then press in and take district by district would be much, much harder. And that's before you factor in the notion of Ukrainian resistance. Um, you know, uh, if... If, if he tries to do that, then we'll have to, to, to occupy the city. We'll have to put troops on street corners in every district and so on. And this is a city that is currently absolutely armed to the teeth, not just in terms of soldiers and a, a reasonably professional Western-trained army, but um, in terms of vast numbers of ordinary citizens who have got guns and who in many cases, I think, are itching to use them. Um, it, it would it would be a, 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 an insurgency on steroids. I mean, I, I covered the the American occupation of Baghdad in two thousand and three, and there they had a, a, a populace who was much more supporting of the U.S. invasion and the and the occupation. Certainly in the early years, the insurgency was a, was a relatively small number of people, and even there when they were far less well equipped, they managed to make life a, mis- a misery for the Americans. So God knows what could happen here when you've got everybody dead set against them and also all, a lot of very sophisticated weaponry at their disposal and the help of people like the CIA and MI5 and half the neighbouring countries in Eastern Europe. Um, the logistical help, the, 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 it's, it's an absolute recipe for disaster. People are saying it's, it would be another a Russian Vietnam or a repeat of Afghanistan. I, I suspect it would probably be far worse. But. So can he... Uh, backtrack or presumably I mean or, or could someone take him out in Russia from within on on the backtracking thing there is a possibility there are some people who say that the the whole idea of a big move on Kiev to to strangle Kiev and to take the city that is actually a bit of a, a red herring and that what he wants to do is uh, take the eastern republic that the eastern self-declared pro-russian enclaves in the east of Ukraine and also the city of Mariupol, which, w- without getting a map out, is rather hard to explain. But it, if he takes the city of Mariupol, then that allows him much more dominance over the eastern Crimean region. 
And what he may do is that after, as this conflict goes on, he may ensure that he's got those eastern bits secured and then perhaps agree to some sort of peace talks, at which point he says, well, all right, look, if you want me to, um, you know, if you want peace, I'm prepared not to try and take Kiev anymore. And everyone will go, oh, thank God. Whereas in actual fact, he, he never really intended to do that in the first place. Um, I should also point out uh, Kremlinology, as it were, trying to anticipate or work out what goes on in the Kremlin is notoriously difficult. It is not an organisation that leaks at all, even seasoned Russia correspondents. Most of them will often admit with, with, there's anyone who says my source in the Kremlin tells tells me this is probably lying. That means they've either spoken off the record to a press officer or that is it. There is no unauthorized leaking from the Kremlin, from what, I've, what I'm told. I'm afraid I've forgotten what the second part of your question was. Whether somebody from within Russia, I don't, would might take him out. I mean, kill him. Well, again, that, that's a big mystery. And again, this is where this issue of the Kremlin being a notoriously secretive organization comes into play. If there is an enormous amount of dissent within the ranks, within the inner circle, we may not be any the wiser on it, I'm afraid, at the moment. But you, you can imagine that if you take it, you know, even vaguely face value the, the the estimates of Russian casualties, which I think that even the Russians themselves has been at least 500, and the, really the American estimates, I think, are around 8,000 or 9,000. Those would be catastrophic losses for uh, or, or certainly substantial losses in, in any normal country and a resigning matter for a leader who had brought a country into that sort of war um, it, it, before you even think about the, the rights and wrongs of it. So you, you would imagine there are people who are probably discussing getting rid of him and that's before you also take into account all the effects of sanctions and everything else and the impact on, on ordinary Russians' lives. Um, Having said that, we haven't seen it yet, but the, that sort of thing may take time. I try and imagine how it might work, and you think, well, maybe it's the moment when some senior general or some senior FSB figure in the security services has a conversation with perhaps his wife or his children where they say something like, you know, um, I went to the supermarket today and I couldn't get any food or our, you know, the cancer treatment we wanted isn't available anymore because we can't travel to foreign countries. And, you know, it's little personal kind of um, dramas like that that perhaps begin to crystallise certain key people into making decisions that might ultimately lead to Mr Putin's um, removal. But it, it's very hard to say, unfortunately. That's not to mention, I suppose, all the oligarchs getting all their assets frozen and they've got to be pretty powerful people. Well, yeah, the, you hear different views on this. Um, most people I've spoken to said that really in, in Russia these days, Putin rules the oligarchs, not the other way around. It is not a relationship of equals where they make the money and he controls the politics. He controls everything. They're allowed to make money but they danced to his tune. So he had already factored in the fact that they were, they were going to be annoyed about this, but most of them were resigned to what, what had happened. Doesn't mean to say that they're not very, very fed up, though, and quite possibly happy to maybe write a cheque for a few million or perhaps a bit more than that 
to the right people if they if somebody chose to make a move on Mr. Putin, um, I dare say. But, um, you know, we, we, we should just have to see about that. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. Does it frustrate you being out on the ground and that you must be hearing sort of different views from back home and there seems to be, at least I've come across, quite a lot of support for Putin and sort of the far left and far right back in the UK. Are you getting that as well? To be honest, since I've been out here in Ukraine, literally since the day the war started, I've not really had much chance to hear what is being said said at home. Um, I, I would have thought that what he's been doing has probably alienated quite a lot of the, the people who do support him. And as you know, he, he has supporters on the left and on the right, um, or did have. I, I would imagine a lot of them are probably now kind of thinking, maybe not, um, because th- th- this war is, you know, to, to most people, does seem so so grossly unjust that there, there isn't an awful lot of room for equivocating in the way that a lot of his supporters on the left and, and on the on the right 
often do. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of stuff about NATO encroaching and being aggressive and that kind of thing. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's an interesting point. That um, if you go to the Baltic republics, I've been to a few of the Baltic republics in the past. They are very enthusiastic NATO members, and I think that the idea that NATO kind of you know um, kind of forced them to join is uh, is a bit fanciful. Absolutely, quite the opposite, I would say. Um, what, what I remember being in the, I think it was Estonia in 2007 or 2008, um, and some Estonian diplomat saying to me, look, you know, you, you NATO people, you, you're running around in Afghanistan worried about what what's going on there, putting a lot of people, a lot, a lot of your troops' lives at risk. You're not watching the real threat Um in the world, and that that real threat is the country next door to us. And I, th- I think, to some extent, he was probably proved right. Tell me what it's like being, uh, you know, obviously you've done this before, you know, reporting on wars and being in conflict zones. What what is it like out there now? Where are you getting, you know, food from? A supermarket's open. What's I can't imagine because all we're seeing is rubble. But what what's it like where you where you <laughs> yeah. are? Yeah, well, certainly, if you watch the TV news um, about um, the Ukraine and Kiev, as I did tonight, you'd be terrified. Um, you know, I was watching the TV news, and you see a, a missile slamming into a housing block, a high-rise housing block in Kiev. And you think, oh my god, you know. Um, and, and certainly, if you go to the scene of these um, the, the, these missiles, uh, missile bombings um, in Kiev, it, it, you wouldn't want to be near when these things. When, the, when these blocks of flats and so on, these civilian areas get hit, uh, you know, every window within a, a square kilometre gets knocked out. There's glass and debris everywhere. Most of the time they hit in the early mornings um, when people are asleep, so the numbers of injured people have not been that much. But I think the best way I would describe it is that although you've got fighting on the outskirts of Kiev, if you imagine somewhere like London, um, or, or pick whatever you know big city you know well. Um, imagine that big city with um, two districts at the east and the west, for example. There's fighting there, two boroughs or two you know smaller neighbourhoods. Um, but the rest of the city, there is no fighting. So a lot of the rest of Kiev, for example, which is about the size of, it's about three million people, which I think is around the size of Manchester. I could be, I could be wrong if you if you include Manchester's suburbs. Um, it, it means that a lot of parts of the city are, you know, you're not going to see fighting of any sort. You will hear loud bangs from the outskirts every now and again, but otherwise, uh, you know, it, they're relatively safe to wander about. The, the thing you do notice is it's very quiet. Something like half the population have left. Um, still half the population are here, but not many people are going out. There's a curfew between eight in the evening and seven in the morning as well, a strict curfew. Uh, but, um, you know, in some, in some neighborhoods you wander around and there are shops open, there are supermarkets open that, that are pretty much full of food as normal. A few shortages here. I was in a supermarket yesterday. It's not. It's not. A, not that much different from going around UK supermarkets during lockdown. There's a few conspicuously empty shelves, but you can get all the basics. And well, what we're now three and a half weeks into the war, some stability I think has returned to some of the supply chains. It's not led to the the, the empty shelves and 
no water in the in the taps and all the other things that you might expect. Surprisingly, also the internet is still working. I'm talking to you now on a wireless service that is as good, if not better, than the one I've got at home. Um, mobile phones are also working, and electronic payments are also working. All these things that we anticipated would be very early casualties, especially what given what we we know and read about Russian cyber 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 warfare capabilities none of that has happened yet um i'm not quite sure whether that is because the russians have simply opted not to maybe they wanted ukrainians to share visions or visual images of the war to to frighten each other or, or to, to allow panic to spread um uh, or, or whether that, that that was one that's one possibility um uh, or it may be that the ukraine's sort of digital infrastructure is, is such that because of past cyber attacks over the last probably decade or whatever, um, that they're well prepared for this kind of thing and they've built in defences so that this sort of thing doesn't happen. Which half of people have stayed? Like, Because I, I was wondering, is it a wealth gap in terms of who's able to leave or is it, or, or what is it? Um, I think the, the majority of people who left in the first week after the Russian, um, the, the first sort of salvos of Russian bombs and so on around Kiev, uh, mainly um, elderly people um, and uh, children, um, you know, vul- vul- you know the, the vulnerable, as it were. Um, and then the, the people who – you don't see many kids on the streets now, I must admit. The, the people who are here now tend to be mainly um, – well, all military-age males, actually. Military-age males have, have not been allowed to leave Ukraine itself so that the majority of them are still here because they've been told if you're eight, between 18 and 60, you're potentially needed for the war effort. Um, but th- there are still a lot of you know fairly ordinary-looking couples in their 30s and 40s you see wandering around and so on. As I say, not so many children and quite a lot of elderly as well who are just like, yeah, you know, um, I'm going to sit this one out. Don't really want to be um, getting uprooted uh, at, at my age. Um, so, and then in terms of the sort of social class, I'm not sure. There's, there's certainly a lot of wealthy people here who I think have moved further west. Um, but you know, not not everybody wants to leave their home. They're worried about it getting looted. Um, worried that that or, or they've got neighbours or friends that they want to look after. There is certainly a sense, I think, amongst some of those who might, you know, some of the the, the adult males who might see themselves having to fight in coming weeks or months that they want to get their wives, their children, their their vulnerable people out of the way and then they can, you know, do fight with a clear head, as it were. They must think you're mad because like a lot of them are leaving and then uh, you're a freelancer and you've just gone straight in there. I spoke to John Sweeney as well who went in there. Are you, um, I mean, what what's your typical day like? Are you hanging out with other journalists? Um, ideally not, no, because if, if you're hanging around with, with, uh, with other journalists, you're not doing your job that much of going out and speaking to uh speaking to the people here you can't work 24 7 though no um because of this curfew there's there's not a lot to do in the evenings at the moment but um uh I, i'm actually I'm, I'm i'm freelance but i'm here for the telegraph so the telegraph is kind of looking after me paying my bills and so on and so forth there are quite a lot of freelancers out here they're just people who have come out to um to try their luck um uh but uh, I mean, the, the the ordinary working day, what what we 
generally try and do is go out with our translator um, during the day and do as much as we can to speak to ordinary people about, uh, you know, what is going on and, and try. There's two tracks to it. There's the military side, which is quite hard to really get much as a sense of because the, uh, the front lines, the Ukrainian armed forces, while they're friendly, they, they're not terribly keen on us speaking or certainly photographing any of their um, their soldiers um, and, and and that's that's towards the rear of the front lines the actual up at the actual front lines proper where there's bullets and bombs whizzing around it's not the sort of place you would be allowed access to w- w- without the Ukrainian forces sanctioning it which they don't and also for somebody like me who's you know not not I don't have a military background um, it's not the sort of place I'd probably be very sensible going to anyway then there's the sort of civil side you know how is life you know how are people coping here how do they you know how do they respond in this sort of crisis which is something we do try to um, to drill into a bit more of a human question are you I mean you mentioned uh, you can hear sort of bangs and things in, in the distance uh, are you scared do you have nightmares no um, occasionally I think when, when you first come here somewhere like this you sort of think oh god it's gonna be awful it's gonna be like like this show on the tv and you know I had visions of uh, you know wandering through the streets to try and get to my hotel and seeing gunfights down one street and bombs landing in the next and so on. And um, you then have to remind yourself, well, yeah, the fighting is only in that neighbourhood and that neighbourhood. And as long as you stay away from that, the chances are that you will be okay. Um, There are shells landing. Um, We've had, I think, in the last week or so, I think that there's been about half a dozen instances where a, a block of housing or a residential area has been hit by a, a missile or a bomb or whatever and you just have to sort of hope that you know that's not going to happen to you that you're not going to be the unlucky person who has a missile land on your head but um in a city of half a million people sorry three million people that is relatively um unlikely i guess and you just have to sort of say right look here the odds are of meeting a sticky end of maybe one in 10,000 as opposed to sort of one in 10 million that they might be at home or, or something like that. It's it's a case of, you know, shortening what were originally very long odds in the first place. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 